All right, so we are in this uh, book of the Bible called Proverbs, and we're kind of looking at it in big chunks. And if you don't know a lot about Proverbs, it's, it's a book in the Bible that's in the Old Testament, so kind of like the first two-thirds of the Bible. And kind of the story of Proverbs is kind of like this, is there was this King David, and you guys have heard of him. He's killed Goliath. He's done all sorts of things. This King David has a son who becomes king one day, and this ki- his son, his name is Solomon. And God goes to Solomon at one point, and he says, Solomon, I want to give you something. What, what do you want? I want to give you something. And, and Solomon essentially says, hey, I would like discernment. I would like discernment in order to rule Israel well. I would like wisdom in order to rule wisdom well. And, and, and I think God's probably response was, wow, I'm surprised you didn't ask for superpowers. But okay, I'll, I'll give you wisdom. And so he gives um, uh, Solomon this wisdom. And what we see is that Solomon becomes the wisest man ever. And out of that, he wrote a few different books of wisdom. And one of them is this book of Proverbs that we're in. And so we get to look at the, this way of wisdom that God directly gave to Solomon. And so um, we've, we've put a tagline on this series. We've called it Proverbs, Wisdom in Dizzying Times. And the reason we did that is because we live in times that are dizzying. Our culture, pretty much my whole life, the culture has been a rapidly changing culture, right? If you even just look at technology and how it's affected us, uh, affected us. It, it's a rapidly changing culture. And so I think that causes people to feel dizzy. And it particularly causes older people to feel dizzy. And I just mean older than 30. Okay. It causes older people to, to feel dizzy because they remember times when, when culture wasn't this rapidly changing. And so for an older person, I think the perspective sometimes in our society is like, whoa, they believe that now? And they believe that? And they're doing that over there to that? What is happening? And, and now I have to insert my debit card instead of slide my debit card? Like, what is happening? Right? And they're spinning around looking at all these views and they get confused and they're dizzy and they don't like it. And so my hope is Proverbs helps that. But also, I think young people, they're dizzy too, but they just like it. Okay? I think young people, they're, they're dizzy too. They just like it. And so I think a lot of times younger people, they're like, oh, that's a new idea. I like it. Oh, that's a new one too. And that's a new one. And, and BuzzFeed, please tell me 12 new ideas to believe now. And, and this is a new idea. And, and, and so young people, they're spinning around too, but they like it, I think. And this is obviously generalizations. It's not true for everybody. But I think that's kind of the state we're in. We're in this societal place where people are spinning around. It's dizzying times. And here's what the problem is. I think sometimes if you lean towards that youthful way, you just want to embrace all the new ideas, even though they're making you dizzy. And if you're older, kind of your flinch, and this is my flinch sometimes, is you want to throw out all the new ideas. Just be like, this, I'm done. But here's what we can know about being dizzy. Whether you like it or whether you dislike it, being dizzy is not good for you. It's not good for you. And so my hope is that we would look at the book of Proverbs and we would let it make it us not dizzy. Because as we saw last week is that Proverbs is this way of wisdom. This first nine chapters that we've been going over this first couple of weeks is this way of wisdom which we realize is really the way of God for us. And we saw that our wisdom starts, the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. 
that wisdom starts with us as humans understanding that we are small and we need God and knowing our place in the universe. And furthermore, knowing that God, and this is where the fear comes in, God can do what he wants to do. He is the creator God, so he can call it as he sees it. And so that's the beginning of wisdom for us. And so I think sometimes we look at books like the book of Proverbs in the Bible and we say, hey, those are a lot of, that's a lot of great advice. It's a lot of great rules about how to live or how to do things. And it's all, all these rules are what's going to get me into heaven. But I don't think that describes the ethics of the Bible well. There's this quote, and you can go ahead and put it up, Nate, if you want. It's in that first little area. This quote I want to read that describes the ethics of the New Testament. And I think it also does a good job describing the ethics of the Old Testament. So read along with me to yourselves as I read this quote. And it says this, If I had to summarize the New Testament ethics in one sentence, here's how I'd put it. Be who you are. That may sound strange, almost heretical, given our culture's emphasis on being true to yourself. But like so many of the worst errors in the world, this one represents a truth powerfully perverted. When people say, relax, you were born that way, or quit trying to be something you're not, just, and just be the real you, they are stumbling upon something very biblical. God does want you to be the real you. He does want you to be true to yourself. But the you he's talking about is the you that you are by grace, not by nature. You may want to read, that, read the last sentence again. Because the difference between living in sin and living in righteousness depends on getting the last sentence right. God doesn't say, relax, you were born this way. But he does say, good news, you were reborn another way. And that's from Kevin DeYoung in his book, The Whole in Our Holiness. And I, I love that quote because I think it shows us what the ethics of the Bible are. They're not ethics that say, hey, this is the way to get into heaven, although I believe that Jesus is the way and the Bible shows us the way into heaven. But they don't show you the rules to get into heaven. All these ethics of the Bible are what they're trying to say to you is, hey, you in your natural human nature are broken, and I want you to be the real you that I created you to be. I had a different intent for your life than what we have for our own lives. And so I hope that as we go through Proverbs, we would realize that these aren't just a bunch of rules to get us to God, but that they, it is God saying, hey, I want you to be the real you that I created you to be. And today, as we look in Proverbs, we're going to hit on kind of that idea in there of what we're made by nature, how we're naturally made, kind of a natural thing of what it means to be human. And we're going to be looking particularly at this idea of the human heart. And what does it mean to have heart in the Bible? And what, does it, what is the heart in the Bible? My, one of my first encounters with this idea of heart uh, growing up was in a cartoon. And it was a cartoon about this hero who brought pollution down to zero. And his name was Captain Planet, okay? And so when I was a kid, this show was about this guy, and he was straight out of, like, 1991, had a mullet. It was green. His skin was like the globe, right, really Captain Planet-y. And he, he would fight, like, litter bugs, like people that, like, litter things, and he would file, like, fight, like, these evil villains that were, like, oil, oil Berenstein, and he would, this guy that would just, like, throw oil straight into the ocean. And this was, like, his thing. 
And what he used was he used these like five or six teenagers to help him in his fight against pollution. And he gave them each a ring. And so he gave one fire, a ring called fire, and another ring called water, and earth, and wind. And, and <clears throat> all these rings had these cool powers. Like if you had the fire ring, you could make fire come out. If you had the water ring, you could make water to do stuff. And you could do all these things with these rings. But there was this one ring, and it was the worst ring to have. And if you were pretending to be Captain Planet with your friends, you never want this ring. And it was the ring called Heart. And so this kid, you're like, what is heart? Everybody, he's putting stuff on fire. I want the fire ring, not the heart ring. And what we saw about the heart ring, this kid, he basically could talk to animals. Like, that's what the heart ring did. He would just be like, heart, animals run, the forest is being cut down, right? And so this was my first encounter. And the animals were like, we know. <laughs> like, it's not helpful. And so this was my first encounter with our culture using this word heart, and then it meant to, to talk to animals, I guess. And as I got older, I saw Wizard of Oz, and I saw that the Tin Man, he, he says, hey, I just need a heart. I need the wizard to give me a heart. So then I'm like, okay, so then it's like a physical thing. And then you watch these movies, and a lot of these movies have these cliches, and there's usually in a lot of movies in general where there's just this older character, and he's like, this kid has got heart, right? And he just he says this. And then my, uh, as uh, in the last few years, a phenomenon has happened that I, that I hate and I'm battling, and it's called The Bachelor. And on The Bachelor, right, sinful, on The Bachelor, all the time, a guy or a girl contestant on that show, they'll say, I just laid my heart on the line, right? That's my imitation of a guy. And I just laid my heart on the line, right, for her. And, and then, or maybe you just, you're just talking to somebody on the bus and you just, there's a wise old woman that just says something like, well, you know, the heart wants what it wants, right? Like, so we have all these ideas about heart, so it can be kind of confusing. And so today, I want us to look at what does the Bible say about heart? And furthermore, what does the Bible mean when it says heart? So let's just hop into it. We're in Proverbs chapter 4. And we're going to be in verse, there you go, that's Captain Planet. <laughs> this is what happens when Vince isn't preaching. <laughs> um, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20. So let's hop into it. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Okay, we stop there. So we get this idea in the Bible where it says, okay, you have a heart. And we get this personification of wisdom throughout the book of Proverbs where it's like a father speaking to his son. Some people think it might have been Solomon actually speaking to his son, but it was probably more of a personification. And so uh, the father of wisdom is saying, son, put my wisdom and put it in your heart. So it's important for us to know what heart means. And then furthermore, the father says, hey, keep your heart with all vigilance. Watch over it. In the NIV, it says, guard your heart. I, I was uh, listening to one guy who says, man, this idea of keeping your heart with all vigilance is saying as if, Act as if your heart is the most valuable thing in your life. It's like the most valuable treasure that you have. 
And so for us, moving forward, if that's our command today, to put the wisdom in our heart and to keep our hearts with all vigilance, then we have to know what the Bible means when it says heart. Because I think our society, our culture, has all these different ideas about what heart means. So Tim Keller, in his book on preaching, this is what he says about the heart. He says, in the Bible, the heart is the seat of the mind, the will, and the emotions. So Tim Keller says, where your mind meets, where your will or your choices or your desire, where that meets, and where your emotions meet, that's the heart. That's how the, how the Bible refers to heart. Another Bible commentator, he talks about the human heart, and he says, this is like the center of the human personality. And then Wayne Grudem says, who wrote Systematic Theology, he says, your heart in the Old Testament is really the whole of your inward moral and spiritual life. So our hearts are important. They're the center of who we are. And so I want to show you, we can put up some more slides about different things the heart does. And the first thing the heart does is it thinks. So this is kind of the first area of your heart. So we see that this guy's heart in the first proverb mentioned there was inwardly calculating. We see that the let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, so the thinking, the pondering of my heart, be acceptable in your sight. And it says, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. And so we see that in the Bible, the heart thinks. But that's not all that the heart does. The heart also has emotions or produces emotions. So in Deuteronomy 28, 47, joy and gladness is produced by the heart. In 1 Samuel 1, 8, sorrow. In John 14, 1, anxiety. And in 1 Peter 1, 22, love. And I'm sure you can find a ton more places where the heart produces emotions. If you want to go to the last slide, so the heart also wants or it desires or it wills or you could even say it makes choices, right? And so Proverbs 16 talks about the plans of the heart. And then we see that uh, Psalm 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And so for us today, as we look at this proverb, we have to have this robust understanding of what heart is. And if you're like, man, I, I don't know if the Bible really says all that, just think of something Jesus said. He said, out of the abundance of the mouth, the heart, or wait, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And so he says, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. And I think we can all relate to that. Usually our words are our thoughts, right? But sometimes, and maybe, I don't do this, but maybe you stub your toe and you just find words leave your mouth, not church words, right? That, that just come out of your mouth too quick, and you didn't think these words, they just come out because the immense pain you're feeling. Or I've, there's been times where I just wanted to say something, like I knew it was a bad idea, I felt it was a bad idea, but then I just, I'm like, I just want to say this, and I'm like, yo, mama is so, and then, <laughs> and so we can see that the heart, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and so we need to have this robust view of heart if we're going to understand what this proverb is saying to us today. So let's read, read that again. Pro, uh, Proverbs 4, 20 through 23. Let's read it again with that kind of new view of heart. It says, My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. Keep them within your thoughts. Keep them within your emotions. Keep them within your will. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart, keep your thoughts, keep your emotions, keep your will with all vigilance. 
for from it flow the springs of life. So we, the main idea today is verse 23, is that we would keep our hearts with all vigilance, that we would keep our thoughts with all vigilance, that we would keep our emotions with all vigilance, that we would keep our desires and our will with all vigilance. But you might be like, why? Why, why does our hearts produce these springs of life? Well, obvious, from an obvious standpoint, you say, because whatever's going on in our heart is what we're going to do. Right? But I think also this way of wisdom, this way of God is showing us something that the rest of the Bible talks about in regards to our hearts as well. Jeremiah 17, 9, it says this about our hearts. It says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So Jeremiah speaks to this reality. The natural human nature of the human heart is that your heart is desperately sick. That it's going to deceive you above all things. So if that's true about our human hearts, that command to keep your hearts with all vigilance makes a little bit more sense. Now, I think Jeremiah was speaking to a reality of someone that wasn't really a believer, someone that didn't have a regenerate heart. That means that God, the Holy Spirit, has come in and made your heart new and clean in his eyes. But Jesus also talks about what our hearts do. Mark 7.21 says this, and this is Jesus speaking. He says, from, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. So Jesus, this is, people love to say, I love Jesus as a teacher. I'm like, do you like that verse though? That says your heart produces all of these evil things that you do it. It's not some external outside force, although it could be that. But Jesus says, no, it's, it's what's from within that causes you to do evil. And James, in the book of James, he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. So we have this idea all throughout the Bible, not only to keep our hearts with vigilance, but that we need to do that because our hearts are sinful. Our hearts are prone to sin. And so today, if you're, here, if you're hearing like, man, I, I keep my heart with vigilance so well. I don't sin ever. I want to challenge that. Because I think this watching over of our hearts, this guarding of our hearts, this keeping of our hearts with all vigilance, I think it's a lost art of Christianity. And it's all throughout the Bible that we should do this, that we should keep watch over our hearts. And we should do this because Jesus himself said, man, out of your heart, that's where sin's going to come from. And so today, that's the main idea. The rest of the day, I'm going to be talking about how we can keep our hearts with all vigilance. And the way I'm going to do that is I first want to look at what sin does to our hearts. There are properties of sin. There are things that sin does, and it will help us keep vigilance over our hearts if we understand that. And then I want to spend the rest of the, the part of the sermon in the different areas of our heart and what I think they're often prone to, okay? So first, let's look at uh, sin and what it does to our hearts. I think the first thing that sin does to our hearts is it tempts and it entices and is, an, is attractive to our hearts. So sin is attractive to our hearts. James 1.14, it says this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
So our hearts, they want to sin. They see sin and sinful things, and they say, man, that looks awesome. And so if we're going to keep our hearts with all vigilance, we have to take a moment and go, man, is my heart seeing sin as attractive right now? Something my dad said to us a lot when we were teenagers and I thought was helpful, he would say, sin is fun for a minute. So he was letting us know the realities of sin seem like they're really fun for a minute, but there will be a time when that catches up to you. So maybe for you, it's longer than a minute. Maybe it's months, years, or, or weeks. But sin is going to attract your heart. And that's a problem if our, from our heart comes springs of life. Because springs of life can't come from sin. So keep our hearts with all vigilance because sin is going to be attractive to it. The second thing that sin does to our hearts is it confuses our hearts. Sin confuses our hearts. Okay, so there, all throughout the Bible, there are these illustrations of light and darkness. And God is always the light. God is in the light. He brings his people into light. Jesus one day is described as being brighter than the sun. God is always the light. He's showing the true way of things is kind of this idea of the light. But then the darkness is this idea of just where bad things happen, where sin happens, where sin flourishes. And Proverbs 4.19, verse right before where we started, describes darkness this way, which I think lends itself to this idea of sin being confusing. It says this, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. I get this picture of me in my house at night when I read that verse. When I, uh, I'm usually the last person in my house to go to bed. And so I'm, the, I'm turning off all the lights in the house. And there's this lamp in my living room. And I know that when I turn it off, my life is about to turn into American Ninja Warrior. Because it's pitch black and I'm just like dodging over stuff. I'm tripping over stuff and trying to catch myself. I'm doing like this move all through the dark, like swimming in the air. And it's because it's dark. I'm confused. I know where I am, but I have no idea where I am, right? I get up, I'm walking up the stairs, it's way too loud. I'm hitting doors way louder than I need to. I'm, not, I'm like patting the door down for the knob, like way up here, I don't know why. And I'm confused. And I think sin does that to us. Sin confuses our hearts. Sin will get us to this place where we feel in the dark, and so things that we knew to be true and good are no longer true and good to us because we're confused. Things we knew about God and who he is, when we allow sin to come in, it will confuse us about who God is. And so sin confuses our heart all the more reason why we need to keep vigilance over our hearts because if sin is getting into our hearts we will, we will be confused. We'll be in the dark. Things we thought were wrong will all of a sudden seem right to us. Sin confuses. Okay? So sin will attract your heart. It will entice your heart. And sin will confuse our hearts. The third thing that sin does is it enslaves your hearts. It puts your hearts into slavery. Right in the beginning of Genesis, right in, I believe it's chapter 4, there's these two brothers, and they give sacrifices to God. And one of the brothers, Cain, gives a sacrifice that God doesn't like. And Cain is huffing and puffing about it. And God has a conversation with Cain. And he says this to Cain. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. 
Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So sin, we get this picture early on in the Bible of sin just hiding at the door, waiting to jump you, waiting to take over your life, waiting to rule over you. It does not want what you want. It wants something perverted. It wants something that is not good for you. In Romans 6, Paul talks a little bit of this idea of being enslaved to sin too, or a lot really. He talks about how when we're, we're, when we're not Christians, we're just enslaved by sin. We can't help but sin. We can't help but, but do things that are sin. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, hear this. A lot of times what that means is taking something that's good and putting it in the place of God. So you can externally seem like a good person and you can seem like a great person to our society, even if you're enslaved to sin. Because we're putting these things in the place of God. And so then Paul says, but now if you're a Christian, you're actually a slave to righteousness. You're a slave to God's ways. But then all in the midst of Romans 6, Paul seems to have, see this tension in, in the Christian church where he talks about to the Christians. He says, don't give your hands over to impurity. Don't give yourselves over to sin. And so there's, there seems to be this property of sin of where it can enslave the Christian and non-Christian alike. But I think for the Christian, a lot of times when we're being enslaved by sin, although we're free in Christ, I think what's happening is we're picking up the chains of sin and we're wrapping them around ourselves. We're just, oh man, I just got to do this. And we're wrapping ourselves, we're enslaving ourselves. And so what I think that causes is you can't get out of patterns in your life. Like we all know, know this to be true if we've had any sort of relationship in our life. It, whether it's romantic or a friendship or a familial relationship where you've gotten in conflicts with certain people in your life and every time you get in that conflict, you can't help but react a certain way. For me, being real honest, it's sarcasm. It's hard for me to get out of this place where I'm not just using sarcasm to respond to my wife, to my kid, to my, my dad and my mom. Because I, there's this pattern of sin in my life, and it is enslaving me every time I do it. I'm putting chains on. Maybe that's not your issue, but I know a lot of you have an issue with lust. And you come to me and you say, Anthony, I just, I can't help but look at people on the street and see them as objects for my use. I can't help but do that. And a lot of you come to me too and say, man, I can't help but look at porn every night. Anytime I'm alone or by myself, I can't help but look at porn. I don't want to look at porn. I don't want to do this. I know it's bad for my mind. I know it's bad for my soul, but I keep doing it. When you are experiencing that, you're beginning to experience the enslavement of sin. Sin has this property where it will enslave you. Maybe you don't struggle with any of those things, but I know a whole lot of you that just complain, and I'm talking about myself too about everything, that you just find yourself grumbling and complaining and dissatisfied with all of life, and, 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 and you're dis it almost turns into gossip because you really don't like a lot of people in your life, and you really don't like a lot of things in your life. And then you know you probably shouldn't complain, but you just can't stop yourself. Every time you talk to someone about your life and about what's going on, you can't help but grumble and complain about it. And it's because sin enslaves us. So we need to keep our hearts with all vigilance because the moment we begin to sin, the moment we begin to have a pattern of sin, we're going to see that enslaves us. We're going to begin to see that it will confuse us. 
we'll begin to see all the damaging effects of sin. And before I go on with the rest of this sermon, let me say this. Jesus is bigger than sin. Jesus is bigger than all that. I know that's super discouraging, all those things, but they're true. And Jesus is bigger than all of those things. Jesus is better like that song we were singing. Jesus is better than any sin. Jesus brings light to your confusion. Jesus has, will free you from your sin. And so we have to remember that when we keep our hearts with all vigilance. And we'll talk a little bit more about kind of that remedy idea later. But now I want to take some time and look at these three areas of our heart. And I want to talk about what I think each of those areas are prone to. And then I think just a wise remedy for each of those areas. And these are kind of broad buckets of areas because over the next few weeks we're going to be really honing in on some specific ideas around what our hearts are prone to. So let's look at this first area of our hearts which is our thoughts and I think our thoughts are prone to pride. I think our thoughts are prone to pride and it's, it's just because we have our thoughts all day. We know our thoughts and so our thoughts help determine our perspective on the world. And so then our perspective on the world becomes what we think is the only true and right perspective. Now, I'm not saying our, there's not components of our perspectives that are, aren't true. I think there are, that are true. But I think the problem is we get pu- kind of puffed up in our perspective and we think that our perspective is the only way things are. And here's, a, here's a, how I know it's true for me, at least, that my thoughts lend themselves to becoming prideful. It's because often when I'm in a room or I'm on a team or I was in a classroom or in a workplace, I often thought to myself, I think I'm the smartest person in here, right? And then maybe, maybe some days when I was a little bit more humble, I'd be like, I'm at least in the top three smartest people. I'm one of the smartest people. And I think a lot of us do that. And it's because our thoughts just lend themselves to pride because we're kind of stuck with them. We kind of see those perspectives. And so we have to keep our hearts with all vigilance when we see pride creeping in. And I think a remedy for when we see pride creeping into our hearts is to seek wise counsel, to look for wise counsel. Find people in your life. You might not think they're wise. You might not think they're smart, but get them in your life. Maybe all your friends think they're smart. Maybe your family thinks they're smart. Get them in their life. And if they have shown that they've lived life well, that they've lived life wisely, get their perspectives on things. Hear from them. Hear wise perspectives. One of my favorite things over this last probably six, seven months is there's three different guys that have come to me in the church. And they've just said, Anthony, and they all are going through very different things. And they say, Anthony, I'm going through a lot. Can you give me some counsel and wisdom on this? What do I do? I go, well, hey, think about this. Hey, look at God's word here. And then I'll be like, hey, read this book. And they've done all these things because they're going, man, I know I'm in a place where my heart is prone to pride. I need to humble myself. I'm not saying I'm like the wisest person they could come to, but I think for them in those moments, I was someone at least a little bit wiser for them to come to. And so because of that, their hearts were course-corrected over these last few months. So our thoughts are prone to pride. Let's look at our emotions. The emotions of our heart, they're prone to blindness. So our hearts are prone to blindness, especially in our emotions. And I think we get this, right? Like, especially in love. 
we can all remember that one person we really, really liked. And all our friends were like, that, don't. That person, no, get away. And our parents were like, no, get away. And our pastor was like, no, get away. And we're like, but I love him, right? I love her, right? Like we, we get in those places because our emotions blind us. I think another one easy to see is that anger just blinds us. Right, we'll be feeling anger, and it will just blind us, and we'll do things we never normally would do. Like for me, when I get angry, I'll, I'll get to this place, and my wife says this to me a lot. She goes, are you mad right now? And I go, yeah, I am. <laughs> and then I just like come full force at her sometimes. And that's because anger is blinding me. I have this other friend who sometimes, I actually have a few friends that do things like this, where when they're angry, they just got to hit something. I had a friend who did this, and they broke their hand. Because our emotions will blind us, and we're going to do things that we normally wouldn't do. And so we have to keep our hearts with all vigilance, especially when our hearts are feeling these really deep emotions. Because they can consume us, and they can cause us to do things that are bad for us. And so the remedy for this is God's word. I think when you're feeling things deeply, go to God's word and see where the writers talked about some of those deep emotions and see what they say to do in those situations. You may not want to go the way that that God's word wants you to go, but that is the right way for you. That's the way of wisdom. And so look to God's word as a remedy to our emotions that blind us. Finally, let's look at the area of our will or our wants or our desires or our choices. This area of our heart, I think, is prone to selfishness. I think it's prone to selfishness. And here's, here's how I know. is So often when I make a choice or I do something, often I'll know it's bad for me, and I'll even feel it's bad for me, but I'll still do it. Here's a really little example. I have eaten McDonald's twice in a day. And I've done that more than once. <laughs> and... It's just bad, and I'll know, I'll know, like, hey, this is really bad for you. Like, I've seen supersize me. It's horrible. <laughs> and then I'll, after I eat it, I just feel horrible. I don't know if anyone feels good after eating McDonald's, right? You're putting the insides of your body through the ringer when you eat McDonald's. And then I'm being so selfish in these moments because I'm just, like, spending all this money on fast food and instead of on healthy food that will hopefully cause me to help, like, be a better dad and be a better husband and also I'm just taking money away from our family and using it towards my selfish desire of just tasting something good for two minutes. And so I think that our wants and our desires, they're prone to selfishness because I meet so many people that say, I know that's bad for me. I know everyone says that's bad for me. I even don't feel great about it, but I just want to do this thing. And I don't care the ramifications. And so I think a remedy for that is a deep understanding and experience of God's goodness. And I think we get this a lot through prayer. There are just moments when I pray where God just helps me to understand and know it, and it's not weird. Like, I just understand that God is good, and he's good no matter what. And then there's also moments in prayer, and this doesn't happen all the time, but where I just feel God's presence, and I know it's good. And so I think so often when we have these wants and desires that are overwhelming for us and we chase these other things, it's because we don't have a deep enough sense of God's goodness. We don't understand that he is more satisfying than those things. 
And so we get to this, and we, we get to the end of this, keeping our hearts with all vigilance, and we looked, we looked at all these things that sin does to our heart, and we looked at all these areas that our heart is, is prone to doing or, or prone to sinning in certain ways. And I think I could just say, hey, then set up boundaries, do all these things, and I think that's really good, and you should set up boundaries with certain things. But I think God gives us a different path for what it means in this moment to, as we keep vigilance over our heart, what the next step is. And I think the next step is this. It's in Proverbs 23, verse 26. And it says this, My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. I think that God is saying to us in that proverb, I think he's saying, our Father in heaven is saying to us, give me your heart. When you see that your heart, when you're keeping vigilance over your heart, and you see that it is prone to sin and it's beginning to sin, give me your heart. Give it to me. Because I think so often we sin and we just try really hard not to sin. But God's way out for us is actually saying, give me your heart. Give me your thoughts. Give me your emotions. Give me your will and your desires. And giving them to God and God saying, hey, this is what you need. Observe my ways. See how I've saved you. And so I think that's the second part is we got to observe God's ways and we can see that very clearly in the gospel and how Jesus lived that out. Right? Jesus came to this earth helping us to not be confused about who God is. Right, he made the invisible God visible. Right, Jesus also came to earth and he shows what a human heart being clean and kept vigilance over looks like. He showed us that with his very life because he never sinned. And then all those disgusting things about our heart, all those disgusting things that we do because we're sinners, Jesus said, I'm going to take care of that punishment for those things on the cross. And so Jesus died to save your hearts. And then three days later, this beautiful thing happens where Jesus comes back to life. And when we believe in all of that, what Jesus can do in our hearts is he can give you and me a clean heart. He can take our sick hearts and he can heal them. And one day he's actually going to come back and he's going to fully change our hearts so that they never sin. And we need to realize that in the meantime, we live in this place where our hearts are still prone to sin. But the solution is not necessarily just making sure you don't sin. The, the remedy is looking to God and saying, God, here's my heart. Here's where I'm sinning. I need you. But then there's wisdom in the midst of that and practical things in the midst of that of looking at our own hearts and seeing how we should keep it with all vigilance. So let's be a people that follow the way of wisdom rather than the way of folly. And let's realize that the way of wisdom is the way of God. It's not just the way of good ideas. It's the way of God and who he is and who he's created us to be. And so let's keep vigilance over our hearts. Amen, church?